Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. I always have to smile when I hear that intro. I have Ken Quiethawk to thank for it, and he came out of retirement to record it for me, and it will it is a treasure that I will hold on to forever. He and his wife have a wonderful website, nativestorytellers.com, and he and they are both native storytellers and they have preserved an old tradition that is that is slowly seeping out of consciousness in, in a lot of areas. Uh be a good idea to check into the website and listen to some of the old stories because they have magic in them and they certainly are able to bring a, a greater sense of spirit into one's life. Tonight I have an author that I am very excited about. I have Glenn um, Glenn Kreisberg here. He is a radio frequency engineer, writer, lecturer, licensed outdoor guide, and the former editor of Author of the Month page at GrahamHancock.com. He serves as director-at-large for the New England Antiqu- Antiquities Research Association. He's the author of Lost Knowledge of the Ancients and Mysteries of the Ancient Past, He's the co-founder of the Overlook Mountain Center in Woodstock, New York. And his website is overlookmountain.org. You want to check it out. The book that we're going to be talking about tonight is called Spirits in Stone, The Secrets of Megalithic America. And all of you know that um, I am very personally involved in understanding the, the stone structures that are here uh, specifically in the Northeast, but they're all over the country. And, you know, as an, old, as an educator who is retired, I am horrified to think that the true meaning of all of these structures isn't being taught in schools, isn't being spread out there so that, so that the general public can have some idea as to the ancient antiquity that truly is here in this country. And Glenn, in his book, does a magnificent job of pointing that out as well. So welcome to the show, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Barbara. It's great to be here. 
Oh, I I couldn't be more thrilled. I, you know, it's really funny. Uh, Ten twenty years ago, um, I'm not sure that that I would have been involved or interested, but but for some reason, Stones called to me, and um, though I'm not one who roughs it, I have been I have trudged through woods and found chambers and picked ticks off people and dogs and all sorts of stuff trying to find out more about the structures and everything. And, and I, of course, my focus was the stone chambers and and the stone walls. And, you know, I, I saw the Karens, I saw the Dolmans, and for some reason I was just so focused on let's get to another chamber, let's see, you know, if it's corbelled construction and the dry construction and everything. And your book, while it, while it hits all of those, um, it really goes more deeply into, you know, why they were constructed, how they were constructed, um, their purpose and their meaning, more so than than anything else I've ever seen. Because uh, you seem to have have a special affinity for them, so that uh, there's great respect here. You can tell. So, how did you, you know, how were you drawn into this endeavor, which which is absolutely encompassing really usually when somebody gets involved in it it's like you have a mission and uh you're doing an, an amazing job of of answering that call for sure so how did you get involved with the uh, stone stone structures well it wasn't really a direct route it was kind of circuitous um i got a, a uh, an interest in ancient history uh, generally, when I was uh, a teenager, a young adult, I had the opportunity to work at, a, at an antiquarian bookstore in my hometown, a little store called Three Geese in Flight, which specialized in, in uh, Celtic and Arthurian mythology and um, ancient cultures and Native American lore. So working there, I read a lot of really interesting books, um, and it kind of sparked my, my interest in ancient culture and ancient mythology. And then moving more closer to the present, uh, probably about 15 years ago, um, in my day job as a as a radio frequency engineer, I was asked to sit on a sighting committee uh, for a cell tower here in our hometown of Woodstock, New York. And in the course of the site application process, uh, there were some residents who spoke at a public hearing and talked about these stone piles that were... Um, that were uh, near the site of the cell tower and they wanted them to be investigated. And basically they were all dismissed as, uh, you know, nothing to see here, a dime a dozen colonial or early American stone walls or stone piles related to farming or agriculture, kind of the, the default bucket that all these sites are put into. And, um, and there was some pretty compelling evidence and there were some folks from NERA who came and talked at the, at the uh, planning board hearing and, described these things as being ancient and Native American and being found throughout the Northeast. And um, and their testimony wasn't really considered because the expert testimony, the archaeologists and the state historians, they all basically dismissed uh, this notion that they could be Native American. I should correct something that you said in the introduction. I am no longer a director at large at NERA, just a, a, a rank-and-file member of uh, oh, okay. of and they're they're a wonderful organization. Anybody who's interested in this subject should look up Nira, and uh, and get involved. Um, so 
so yeah, it was that public hearing that really sparked my interest. And, and then I spoke to some of the, uh, some of the residents who lived near the site and they, they took me to show me these stone piles and I could tell that they were not uh, related to stone quarrying, which took place up on Overlook mountain and that they were uh, not um, related to uh early land subdivisions. I mean, it really sparked my interest in going and trying to research and find out what the heck they were and who was responsible for them. Cause I didn't buy the, the line that they were just all native, uh, excuse me, all uh, early American or colonial in origin and that some of them might be uh, in fact ancient and, and much more interesting. Yeah. I think that's the one thing that gets to me, the fact that um, in, if you, if you look at, you know, stone, Chambers, stone walls, dolmens, uh, the the cairns, um, all of these are so more so much more ancient than the people you know in this area understand that these are these are characteristics, these are forms that are all over the world, and in other parts of the world, they are credited with being thousands of years old. And yet in, in America, um, the um, powers that be tend to say, well, yeah, the Indians did that or the colonists did it. And if you took all of the stone um, structures that are in this country and you pulled them, put them all together, uh, you would find that, the, that North America has the greatest collection of stone monuments in the world. And that's, it, prob- it, that's probably true, and, and not, it's not fully recognized, but that's, that's probably uh, accurate to say. Um, and, of course, you know, if, you, if you want to consider all of uh, North America and you think about you know, what you have going on in the Mississippi Valley and in the ancient cultures there and in the southwest, uh, you know, it's a, tr- a tremendous amount of uh, archaeological evidence uh, that supports right, that they yeah. had this, this view, this sophisticated view and construction techniques that aligned with with the stars but yet in the northeast no such uh view exists and it's kind of uh the the entrenched dogma that no native americans built in stone anywhere in the northeast and it's you know it's just um simply not true not supported by uh by evidence if you do the research well i think the other thing too is is in school that it, people are taught that you know the native americans that that were here were just hunters and gatherers and you know they were small bands and and the reality is that there were there were huge nations of of native american indians here and and there are sites in this country that that go back <clears throat> excuse me thousands of years and it, to me it is such a sin to not educate the population into the fact that, you know, just like Egypt, we have these kind of sites. All right, they aren't pyramids, and you can't have, you know, a great deal of uh, tourist traffic and stuff like that. But the reality is our country is so rich in a, in a, in a history that goes back thousands of years. <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the copper mines up in Michigan and Minnesota have been in production for 9,000 years. So it is. It's, it's astounding. You know, we do it, a terrible it, injustice uh, to to the ancient populations going back as long as there have been populations here, whether that's ten, fifteen, twenty thousand years. Uh, to say that there was no civilization during that period is just—it's almost ludicrous. 
and um, as you mentioned, and, and 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 there are some who would dispute that the that the uh, earthworks and that the um, constructions of the of the Mississippi Valley five thousand years ago didn't rival what there was in Egypt as far as the the uh, constructed techniques, the scale of some of the mounds that were built in the Midwest were were uh, you know awesome. Uh, uh, you're right, maybe not as big as the Great Pyramid. But rivaling it and and uh, built within population centers that certainly rivaled anything anywhere on Earth at the time. So well, so yeah, to, to uh, you know it's a kind of a convenient untruth to say that there was no civilization here. It allowed the oh, Europeans yeah. when they arrived to just take what they want, carte blanche, and not really have to consider that it belonged to anybody or that there was something here previous to them. Oh yeah, and you look at Monk's Mound. That was a huge um, city. I mean, there were cities here. They were, you know, um, the Iroquois, I believe, had a, had a nation that went all the way down almost into Mexico. I mean, it was a huge, there, there, was, there was an amazing, um, there was an amazing culture here that textbooks don't give it credit for. And the, the other thing that really out, outrageous me is that, the textbooks really look upon the Indians as primitive, and they were so far from that. And, and it infuriates me that that when they when the colonists invaded and they invaded this land, um, they decided that, that the indigenous people were so barbaric they had to convert them to Christianity without taking the time to learn that they had a religion that was far superior. To what you were trying to, they were trying to cram down their throats. They had um, an affinity with nature. They could read the earth energies. They they were amazing people, and and yet they were such a gentle people, really. Even though they did kill people, but but they were a gentle people, and so they were overwhelmed and overrun. And of course, you know, we gave them all the diseases that almost wiped them out too. So. Um, we came close to destroying something that's very precious to us, and our history is important because if you don't know your history, you don't have a foundation to build on. That's very true. That's very true. And and uh, you know, unfortunately, the the the, uh, the Dutch Calvinists that came to this region, um, uh, you know, New England or, or New York specifically. Um, you know they they and and the the uh the european population in general was fed a pretty steady diet of propaganda that the natives were savages that they were devil worshipers that they uh you know killed and eat their their baby these uh these dialogues from the uh church the jesuit relations just paint the most horrible picture of the native population and it's and it's pretty much been shown to be uh propaganda tactics to turn you know the European populists against the the indigenous population and and go along with wiping them out. So it was a horrible a horrible thing that happened. The ones that weren't wiped out, as you say, by disease um, and by the views of of the early colonists, were basically given the choice to assimilate, uh, you know, into the uh, religion and and behavior of the Europeans, or were rounded up and and put into reservations and and. Um, and oppressed uh, in that way um, to no end. So they really, really got a, a horribly raw deal. Um, 
and 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 it you know it didn't it didn't necessarily start out that way when when the Europeans arrived when they began to negotiate with the native civilizations that were here it was a uh, it was you know it was a system that Europeans were fairly familiar with you had you had clans or you know head, headed by chiefs where where tribes um, you know had their uh, um, their, for lack of a better term, their prince and princesses married off to the other tribes, prince and princesses for alliances and peace alliances, trading alliances, and this type of negotiation and, and interaction wasn't wasn't foreign, and was quite familiar to the Europeans, and they were able to get along quite well in many cases with the the, the tribes. But that devolved um, as the Europeans became greedy, and as concepts like manifest destiny began to take hold. You, you had the deterioration of the equal the equal partner um, in negotiating treaties, and suddenly it was you know our way or the highway um, you know approach for uh, by the Europeans, and and the natives were uh, were terribly terribly taken advantage of, uh, left with very little, if not anything, of their of their culture, and um, there were you know efforts made to to um, convolute the ancestry and the and the linea- lineage of these tribes. So that they could not be um, retained or recovered, and and um, it's really a challenge these days. Oh yeah, and I think what 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 is so infuriating is that that they, like you said, assume that they were barbaric and that they didn't have brains in their head. And I I you know the to think that someone who is in the same generation as you doesn't have the same mental power as you really offends me you know everybody uses their their intellect in a different way and the indians um were were so um attuned to nature to the nature energies to to keeping a balance in in the environment and they they you know they didn't kill unless they needed food and and then they thanked the animal for you know sacrificing its life for them i mean it was it was a gentle type of culture that that and and yes they had wars and arguments too but not the way we do today and i think what what really amazes me especially about your book your book brings out such wonderful um details of of things that anybody who lives in the northeast especially the new york area um you've seen the walls and you've probably seen the chambers and the the Karens um, kind of have been hidden from view. They're there, but all you think it, is that they're a rock pile, and they're so much more than a rock pile. But they are stacked stones. And um, you, you want to explain a little bit about them, because I know a lot of people don't understand what they are or were or meant to be. Well, I understand your dilemma with the chambers. The chambers are so fascinating; they can be all-consuming, and they're yeah. and certainly a pile, of, a pile of stones is not as exciting as a, as one of these awesome <laughs> megalithic chambers. Um, but you know, I do get excited about the piles of stone. And what I did was I took a, a GIS approach to my methodology. I plotted the location of these stone piles in the woods, and the stone piles. Um, you know, you have to you have to look at them and you have to do the research about where they are and what they consist of and and um and whether they fall into um which bucket and, and which um which pattern uh and the patterns that are revealed um kind of give away what, what these sites are. And um 
one of the patterns we found when we plotted all these on the map and tried to, to start to connect the dots is that many of these sites have both line of sight and non-line of sight um, alignments on the azimuth with uh, what would be the winter solstice sunrise, summer solstice sunset, and summer solstice sunrise, winter solstice sunset bearings. Um, and this became very apparent uh, once we took this GIS approach and we, and we um, uh, looked at a, uh, a chart for the solstices that was provided by Curtis Hoffman, an archaeology professor at UMass. And um, he's been doing a lot of this research as well and, and establishing a pattern in, in his region, which is Massachusetts and Rhode Island and, and um, uh, southern, southern uh, Vermont in New Hampshire, and, and seeing the same thing, where these sites align with each other along this solstice bearing. And also a lot of them align east-west for equinox alignments uh, for the sunrise and sunset. And um, we're also seeing a lot of these uh, dolmens or large boulders that are set up, and I call them either compass stones or calendar stones, or in some cases both. Uh, in that they're oriented um, so that their prominent faces and points or noses of these boulders point and align with the cardinal directions, north, south, east, and rest, west, but they also align with one another, um, sometimes with line of sight along uh, ridgetops and mountaintops, uh, other times through, through valleys, kind of um, uh, connecting the dots between the, the high points along these solstice sunrises and sunset um, uh, uh, Azimuths. So, um, you know, this is all verifiable with the compass in the field or with the protractor on the map, uh, in 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 the uh, you know on the computer, and um, mm -hmm. you're able to see quite quite clearly that these sites do align, do fall into a pattern, uh, and the pattern speaks to a sophistication and understanding, almost having a, a scientific understanding of the movements of the sky, of the sun, of the stars. Um, and in many cases of the moon moon cycles as well, very important to, to Native American and indigenous uh, belief systems. So, yeah, so yeah, the sophistication is there. The sophistication is there. What we see with the piles and the cairns um, and the dolmens on the ground, you know, um, is evidence of this three-dimensional belief system because everything they build on the surface relates in some way to the underworld through a connection to hydrologic features in water or they're placed uh, uh, or built uh, uh, in places where springs and headwaters to important water courses uh, originate. Um, and they're also connected to the sky, to the celestial world uh, through, through star maps um, and through the sun rise and sunset on the, on the uh, equinox and solstices. So this is that three-dimensional sophisticated worldview or, or belief system that we find everywhere across the globe in civilizations. And we find it here with the native cultures in the Northeast um, in their spiritual beliefs dating back thousands of years. Well, one thing that, that puzzles me, um, especially with the compass stones well, and, 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 and even, even the, even the chambers, they didn't have a calendar. How did they determine the cardinals? I know the Indians would always, you know, honor the different directions without calling it northeast, south, and west. How did they determine, first of all, the directions and then the equinoxes? Well, I think they did it through keen observation. 
um, and creating, creating observation sites where they could study the sky and the movements and the positions of the sun and track it and plot it and memorialize it with these stone constructions. So I think these, this is evidence of how they determined it and how they preserved that knowledge. Um, and you're right, some of the earliest ceremonies documented by the colonists when they arrived were, say, this tobacco ceremony where you would um, honor your, your ancestors, the, the grandmother and the grandfather, and associate it with a direction to the north or the mm-hmm. south or the east or the west. And, and this was an important ceremony. And uh, it also speaks to the importance of them understanding where those cardinal directions were and incorporating them into their spiritual belief system. And, um, you know, they had, as you mentioned, a, a kind of a profound and intimate connection to nature uh, and, 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 and understood it in a way that, you know, much more intuitively than we do now. We have to look at a calendar. We have to look at a watch. We have to, um, you know, use, use a, a GPS navigation to find someplace. Yes. Just a few, just a few years ago, we didn't have that, and now some people they're like, "How did I ever find any place?" I, you know, you, you you had to look on a map and see where you were and see where you were going and get oriented. Uh, we've lost that because of technology, and um, and you know, calendars do the same thing. We just look on a sheet of paper on the wall and it tells us everything. Whereas uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, in in antiquity, it was a little more complicated, and you had to have that intuitive connection to nature to understand where you were in that cycle that um you know daily cycle uh, monthly yearly and even um longer period cycles like are talked about in vedic ancient vedic scripture like the yugas or the mayan uh baktuns and 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 um you know their their calendars that uh, were very very precise and whereas we had one we have one calendar the mayans had 12 calendars well, I know, you know, the North Star, you know, I, I understand. It, it just seems so strange to me that, or difficult for me, that if, if you put me on a planet and and I had to sort of figure out, if if it had seasons, if I had to figure out what the seasons were, I don't know how I would go about doing it. I, I would, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I think I would, you know, Hope that I could uh, survive no matter what happened, but I don't think it, at least, you know. Of course, I don't have the same frame of reference as they did, but I'm not sure I would have looked to the sky for the stars to tell me the directions and things like that. I, I wanted to ask: a lot of the compass stones, are they on pathways, or, in other words, were these put on on pathways where people? normally or there was traffic to them to to see the sight line to another one or something like that or are they just in the dense woods now um well, let me first go, go back to what you were saying about getting oriented on a planet because that's kind of interesting um <laughs> and and um and, and what you said about the north star is is key uh because the north star of course is is marking celestial north and celestial yeah. north for us for us is the point in the sky where the Earth's axis is pointing. So mm-hmm. once you um, uh, you know can visualize the the Earth as a sphere and having an axis passing through the minute, middle and it pointing at a at a spot in the sky. Now you're now you're starting to think about okay, well this this sphere that I'm on has a, a you know a, a north point and a south point, and um, and and understanding where those points are on that globe 
is going to be better understood by understanding where the axis is pointing to in the sky, because that point of celestial north is an orientation point. And when you have um, surveyors go out in, in, in the old school of surveying, the way they used to survey in the early 20th century, um, the very first thing they would do whenever they got a surveying job was go out at night and shoot Polaris, shoot the position of celestial north, because all of their readings would be taken off of that. And their, and their readings would not be accurate unless they had that reference point. And so that's how every job would begin, by, by shooting Celestial North. Now, in preliterate cultures, and there's a wonderful book I always recommend called Hamlet's Mill um, by uh, uh, Giorgio de Santolina and Hertha von Deutschen. They were both some couple of MIT scholars who wrote this book called Hamlet's Mill in uh, in the late 1960s. And their their thesis was that the single biggest pre-occupation uh, with pre-literate cultures was the tracking of celestial north. And because the earth is um, tilted on its axis and doesn't spin uh, cleanly on its, on its axis, but in fact wobbles, um, celestial north uh, changes and the star that marks it changes. Currently it's Polaris, but uh, thousands of years ago it was um, the star Thuban, which is the third star in the tail of Draco the serpent or the snake constellation. So, um, so I, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of clues there in how, um, in how ancient cultures got oriented um, and understood their place in the world and their world's place in the universe and, and that, um, you know, that worldview began to develop. I don't think it happened quickly. I think it took, you know, uh, many, many generations of human beings uh, acting in consort, like working together to understand these these features of the world they were in, these natural features, um, and then they were able to, you know, kind of put together into a into a belief system and a, and a worldview. Um, uh, now that I answered that part, I can't recall what the first part it was supposed to get back to answer. <laughs> well, no, I, I I was wondering if um, I, oh, I know oh, if, a if, lot if of these calendar stones. Yes, if they're located on on travel trails on on ancient yeah. pathways that people traveled. Um, it's a great question because, of course, the modern paths and the modern tracks that do lead past these, and, and there are trails that, that do go past these calendar stones and these compass stones, and some of them are quite remote, and, and they are accessed today by um, you know, a network of hiking trails on state land or preserve. But I want to believe that many of these points that have... Um, as I mentioned, many of them are on shoulders. They have, uh, or, or mountain summits that have wonderful um, view sheds, and and um, and I think any any place that had a really superior view shed that allow you to survey the land, see, see who you know who and what's happening, who's coming and who's going from that vantage point um, was an important spot, and was marked as such by these rocks. So I do think they were um, uh, positioned along travel corridors that humans, as long as there had been humans in the region, utilized uh, to get across the land and would encounter these and they would um, uh, provide, you know, assurance and and stability uh, that you were in the right place, heading the right way and oriented in your your world correctly. Well, what about the the Karens? Now, they often are in groups. I I know when I was... um, Looking at that uh, in a mountain, uh, there was a huge field there that had, I mean, it had 
Karen's all over the place, and and you, you wonder, you know, were these boulders? Were these? Were they? Were they? Sig- what do they signify? Well, that's one of the mysteries in in in, uh, in our region, uh, such as the Lewis Hollow site. We've um, correlated the position of the Karens on the ground with, with the constellation Draco, which is a significant find. There are other researchers, uh, Evan Pritchard, a Native American scholar of our region, is one of them who also discovered other Karen fields that correlate or, or reflect constellations in the sky. He happens to believe that our whole region perhaps is um, uh, a series of Karen fields that represent constellations. Perhaps all of the constellations in the Northern Hemisphere could be mapped on the ground as a giant uh, star map. Uh, that you know the evidence for that has not been um, uh, established, but Evan you know believes if if we keep kind of connecting the dots and and discovering these sites and documenting their locations, this pattern might get filled in, and it wouldn't be surprising if that was the case because I do think they they were um, aware of the major constellations in the northern hemisphere, uh, uh, you know knew, knew about how they moved across the sky at different times of year and how to interpret that. Um, there was a conference several years ago up at Colgate University called the Stars and Stones Symposium. It was hosted by Anthony Avini. He's America's premier archaeoastronomer, although he's done most of his work in in uh, Mesoamerica. He um, connected with an archaeologist from um, Fort Drum up in the Adirondacks uh, uh, named Lori Rush, who was the cultural resource manager up there, and she brought to him a calendar site and an effigy site known as the Sitting Bear and Standing Bear, and um, showed that it was an important archaeoastronomy site, which Avini had no idea there was in his region of New York. Um, and and uh, when he saw the evidence, he called the symposium. And what was so fascinating is that it wasn't just the scholars and the, and the uh, academics that were involved. It was also the regulators from the State uh, Historic Preservation Office, uh, Federal uh, you know, Department of Interior, Forest. Uh, National Forest Service, and then also the, he had um, members of, of uh, Native American tribes, their elders and their uh, tribal preservation officers attend and share information. And it was held at Colgate, which has a beautiful um, planetarium, uh, the whole, whole, I believe it's called the Hove Visualization Center, where they were able to um, host and, and put a lot of these um, dates and sky configurations Based on the Native American um, stories and, and folklore, uh, up on the, up on the um, on the sky, up on the on the projected on the planetarium ceiling, and it was amazing. And, and it was the first time that these three groups came together, and uh, it was kind of a watershed moment in research for, of these uh, ceremonial stone sites, because um, you know a lot of these state regulators uh, and, and visiting academics had to admit that none of this stuff was on their radar, that they had no idea that it existed in our region, that there were uh, archaeoastronomy sites, effigy sites um, uh, that uh, preserved important information and knowledge um, uh, and, and that held a scientific understanding of how the sky and the objects in it move and, and interact and help form the belief systems of these ancient cultures. So it was an important day. Oh, I would imagine. I know that... Uh... You, you mentioned effigies, and um, 
lots of people probably aren't aware of the stone effigies of which you speak. You want to kind of go into them a little bit? They're they're fascinating. Sure. Well, that's one of the great aspects of these piles of stones is sometimes you look at them and, and you see things. And um, and one of the things that is, is um, found is these turtle cairns, turtle effigies, uh, these beautiful um, formed piles of stone that you can't really miss that it's a turtle with a head and paws and, and you know, the shell built above it. And there are entire sites like uh, in Bearsville, um, we have the turtle cairns and, and they're, they're a dozen or two dozen of these beautifully formed cairns that really resemble turtles. And they're all built around a central effigy stone. that's about 40, 40 feet across um, and to maybe 20 feet tall. That also is, is resembling a, a, a giant turtle. So um, I don't believe that that stone was moved. It's a, it's natural bedrock, uh, but I think it was identified uh, by ancient culture in the region and they, uh, exploded that stone uh, to express their belief system by building all these other little cairns uh, resembling turtles around it. And then we go to other sites like Spruceton Valley. There are turtle cairns there. And I've had uh, over the course of, of, a few, of you know the years of research I've been doing, people have been sending me pictures from Vermont and from Pennsylvania, from down south um, of other turtle effigies. So it shouldn't be that surprising to find a turtle effigy part of a Native American cultural belief system um, and expressed uh, uh, in this way because uh, it's so prominent in their creation myth, the, the turtle character and, and how it was, um, you know, how North America is considered to be Turtle Island by most uh, Native American nations and tribes. So um, uh, we do find turtles uh, throughout the Northeast in the woods, and to me it's not that surprising. We also find snakes. Snake and serpent effigies are also quite common, and these usually take the form of a wall. Um, mm-hmm. So again, this is uh, uh, you know a, a wall that if you research it and kind of through a uh, process of elimination, you can determine, okay, uh, you know it's not conforming with any property boundaries, so it's not related to surveying. The land wasn't farmed or homesteaded, so it's not necessarily part of farm beautification or agricultural activity. It doesn't enclose anything, so it's not really, uh, you know, um, something that you could hold livestock in or, or keep animals out of the, out of the, um, the crops. Um, so you're, what, what are you left with? You're left with this curving stone wall that ends at a large boulder. When you look at it a certain way, it resembled a serpent or a snake effigy, and you must uh, consider that it might be something symbolic, something um, expressing a belief, uh, something that was important for someone or some group to build uh, off in the woods. And um, and when I brought up uh, um, the arc of astronomy and having to uh, understand precession and celestial north and how that position changes due to precession of the equinox and how ancient cultures may have wanted to keep track of that, um, to me, in many cases, Draco or the serpent effigy is representing Draco, which which um, uh, represents uh, the, the tracking of, of the procession of the equinox and the understanding the changing of the position of the dragon, which is the way many cultures express it in their mythology, the dragon uh, moving or the dragon unfolding its wings. And this would signify that the position of celestial north was, was changing. It would change slowly. It would take hundreds or thousands of years for that spot in the sky to get marked by a new star 
many, many generations would go by and there wasn't a star marking a celestial north. So again, this is even more reason for them to be careful in how they would track it and how when there was a, a prominent star like Thuban or like Polaris that was marking the position of celestial north, they would note that, they would note the movements, they would encode it um, in their architecture, in their inscriptions, in their mythologies. Because you have to remember before uh, the time of the ancient Greeks, there was no scientific or technical terminology. So um, uh, observations of nature had to be expressed and were usually expressed um, through uh, allegory or through symbolism that needs to be uh, interpreted or decoded. So, um, so I think all of this uh, important information is, uh, is there in ancient stories, in ancient law, in preliterate um, um, uh, oral tradition, in pre-Christian mythology that speaks to um, you know, these cycles of time and, and, and death and destruction and resurrection, uh, common themes. So you know, I think this is um, found throughout, throughout the world. I mean, you look at um, the Aztecs and the Incas, you look at the Egyptians, you look at um, so many different ancient cultures, and they all were they all observed the stars. And then you get to the the Native Americans, and they as well um, used it as a calendar, used it as a timetable, used it to, in many ways, you know, this is where this is they used. Um, Something that I love, um, they used um, geographical calendars. And, you know, if there's a notch in a mountain and when the sun hits that one notch, it signifies either, either uh, you know, summer, winter solstice or, or the, or the uh, equinoxes. I mean, they used the landscape as a calendar. And um, something that we wouldn't think to do, you know, normally um, – and and it, it it was amazing. I think you've got a picture in your book of of a place that has a notch in a mountain where, um, on the equinox, the sun either rises or sets right in that notch, and it is so accurate, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I think those are the Kingston megaliths, and, and yeah, you're, and you're you're um, you're absolutely right. And a lot of what I try to document in my book would probably fall into the category of landscape um, archaeology. Um, or, or landscape um, astronomy, where they did mm-hmm. uh, survey their their land um, and and identified these features, natural features in the landscape that they could manipulate and and um, uh, develop into into observation sites that would allow them to uh, to mark the, these cycles of time. Because I think, you know, if you think of um, you know the way the earth spins and every day it, it makes one rotation and gives us the, uh, the day and night cycle and how that affects us uh, mm-hmm. so profoundly. And, and it, it, it revolves around the sun and it takes a year. It gives us the, the seasons that affect us, the climate, the weather so profoundly. But then there's that slowest hand on the clock, on the celestial clock known as procession, known as the great year by the, the ancient Greeks and by the ancient Chinese. And that did involve understanding um, the position of, of uh, a celestial north and the changes uh, over time and how it related to the constellations, both equatorial with the zodiacs and circumpolar 
with the movement of Draco and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and um, really uh, understanding how, and this is what the part that's so fascinating to me because the, the, the you know, if, if you think of that slow hand, that slow 26,000 year hand of procession, yeah. and you think about how, how, how profound the day and the month and the year affect us, well, how does that great year affect us? And according to, you know, these, uh, the, the Yugas and the East Indians, it, it affects us profoundly. It affects us the rise and fall of civilization and it affects the evolution of human consciousness, of technology, um, of all of that is tied to this cycle uh, that is um, associated with celestial powers and celestial energies and the ebb and flow of, of, um, of our cultures is um, it's dependent on it. It's superimposed on evolution. So it's something that's really important for us to understand. The ancients understood it. We're just beginning to re you know, kind of rediscover and reattach uh, significance to it because, of course, we're coming, according to, to those cycles, coming out of the darkest of times and the lowest and the most shallow of our, of our yeah. mental um, abilities. So we're kind of hung up in a very material time, but um, slowly, slowly progressing towards something that's uh, more, more of a golden age. I would hope so, because when it, when it comes to spirituality and, and level of consciousness and understanding your place in nature, they had it all over us. And it, it, I think there is a movement today to get back to, um, to understand and to seek out those parts of ourselves that, that you know, remember those times and, and to, to sort of try to get the familiarity and the connection back. There's a book called um, oh, Earthing where they, they strongly recommend that people walk barefoot on the earth at least 20 minutes a day because it, it reattaches them to the earth, the heartbeat of the earth, and the, the Indians didn't suffer from a lot of the maladies that we suffer from today because we've isolated ourselves from our connection to the earth. Um, there are so many things that the Indians had to share that um, that, that have been lost, unfortunately. Um, there, there was a um, gee, I can't remember the name of the tea. Um, there, there is a tea that was used by the Native Americans um, that that literally cured cancer, forms of cancer, Essiac tea. And there was a uh, a nurse that um, was was treating uh, an Indian who who was coming to the clinic to be helped. And this is this goes back to the 30s, 40s. And she noticed a scar, in the, and she said, what was this from? And she said, that's where I was cured from cancer. And um, the nurse sought out the medicine person that had made the tea for the lady. She, she cultivated it herself. She made it. She started using it on her patients. She had over 5,000 cures of cancer documented, and the government shut her down. But, but it was a Native American cure, and it worked. And... People still to this day can get the SEAC tea and use it for cancer. I'm not saying it cures all kinds, but it does help people. So they had so much to offer us, and we didn't think to even check out where they were coming from before we decided that they were barbaric and we tried to do away with them. Um, I wanted to talk, too, about the perched boulders because they're a favorite of mine. And, and they often look like they should tumble you know, 
the minute you touch them, and they are so strongly mounted on their stones that they're sitting on. Um, there are some that are rocking, but for the most part, these these huge boulders are sitting on itty bitty little rocks, and they they you can't tell me. And we've spoken of this before that, that no glacier put it there, and. So you wonder how did they get the boulder on the perch on on the rocks, and then what did it symbolize? Right. Well, well, we touched on this a little bit, but the the um, the perch boulders are are really really fascinating, and there are some that are balanced very precariously. You sent me uh, some really cool pictures the other day of some near the coast, which I wasn't aware of, uh, but they are similar to the ones we have here. And the ones I've mm-hmm. seen elsewhere, um, and yes, geologists will tell you that these came out of the glaciers, um, and as the glaciers receded and their ice melted, they dropped these to the ground, and you know smaller stones were below the bigger ones in the ice, and some of them just fortuitously kind of settled upon uh, these base stones um, and and maybe in a few cases that may be the 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 uh, you know what what actually occurred. Um, but in other cases, you can tell that the stone has been manipulated. You can tell that it's at a very unnatural angle and that nature wouldn't have just placed it that way. Um, and uh, in many times, they are set up uh, purposefully, like we see in, in Europe and in, in uh, dolmens and in, in megalithic uh-huh. cultures in Great Britain. Um, and, and many times, as I mentioned, they're oriented, their features are oriented to the to the. Uh, cardinal directions and they're also situated in areas that uh, allow them to be aligned with other large boulders and stones um, some at great distance uh, 10 or 20 miles apart some like um, the Hammonasset line which may be hundreds of miles and some of the sites along it um, are varied some might be cairns, some might be perched boulders some might be chambers um, but they all fall along this particular alignment Um, you know some of these that I've documented i've estimated to be between 20 and 30 tons a lot of times yeah. we do get questions about well geez that's so big how could humans have moved it and um and my answer generally is well where there's a will there's a way we know that humans have moved huge huge stones much bigger than 20 or 30 tons hundreds of tons um over great distances um in 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 antiquity um there's a great story i like to tell about a uh, an american engineer who was in china and he noticed the stones that made up the ramparts on the um, on the sides of the uh, Forbidden City, these uh, steps that led up to the central area or, this, or the entrance, uh, huge, huge staircase. But he noticed that on the two ends were these giant, giant ramparts, solid pieces of stone that were just humongous. And um, this was at a, this was uh, you know this was recently I would say in the last ten years this, this engineer noticed these and he started researching them he was so fascinated he wanted to know where they came from how they were transported and because this wasn't so long ago I want to say they were um, the, the uh, Forbidden City I want to believe was built in the 14th century maybe the 1300s some, somewhere around that period I could be wrong yeah. but I think that's uh, about <clears throat> the time frame. And he found records. He found records of the construction, and, the, and he found uh, a diary that specifically spoke of these stones and where they were quarried from and how they were moved. And it turns out they were moved on what was described in the documents on a river of ice. 
So from the quarry where they were quarried to the site of the Forbidden City where it was being constructed, they built a road. They drilled wells all along the road. They flooded the roadway. And in January of a particular year, 300 men moving these stones so many feet per day transported them on this river of ice that they created to, to, you know, move these stones. They slid them, slid them along on the ice. And, um, you know, what great ingenuity and who would have thought that that would be the method that they would have used to transport these stones. And of course, in the, came the spring, the, the river of ice or the road of ice melted away and, and perhaps the wells were filled in. Who knows? But um, uh, he was able to kind of solve that mystery of where these giant stone ramparts came from for the Forbidden City stairway, uh, staircase in China and uh, how they uh, made their way to the, to the construction site. And it was all well documented. So when it comes to moving large stones, I think if people have a, a you know a, a will to do it, if they have a civic uh, community uh, approach to let's get this done, um, and and using tools like compound leverage and and um, and ropes and 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 uh, fulcrums and um, you know good old uh, uh, elbow grease strength, human strength. They could move these stones. They could get them where they want to. They could transport them. They could uh, orient them uh, to fit their belief system. I don't think that was, um, you know, anything that's that was too big a challenge. That is the most believable story I have ever heard on moving the megaliths. Yeah, well, you hear a lot of theories about how it was done, but this this engineer, I wish I knew his name, was able to, you know, prove how those stones got from where they were to where they went and, uh, and the method that was used. So uh, too bad. I mean, I guess when it comes to the pyramids in Egypt, there are those who claim yeah. they are hieroglyphs <laughs> that, that, that show exactly how, you know, the, you know, dra- the slaves dragging the stones. Um, and I'm sure that was part of it. Uh, but, you know, there were other techniques that are still, um, you know, undiscovered and that we still don't seem to be able to repeat even with modern modern equipment and, and uh, techniques. Well, it's, it's, you know, obviously I don't think there were little green men r- running around helping them, so it, it was most probably their ingenuity. I Like you said, where there's a will, there's a way. You've, you have a problem and you work at it till you solve it. And, you know, th- these these people were were amazing, and I think most of the roads, at least here in Connecticut, were um, were formed by running a road along the walls that, that that were already in place. Patrick used to say there wasn't a straight road in Connecticut because they, you know, all meander and wind, and and um, that's why we had such a fun time with with the stone walls, but. You know, I think we we should talk too a little bit about the fact that most of them, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them are made of granite, and that's a very hard stone. And it it's I I think one of the things about the construction that they used the granite for, to me, the granite seems to, it had a great deal of quartz in it. So there was there's the element of were some of these structures used for communication in some way? Uh, 
it, it's it's possible. I mean, when you talk about granite, um, you know, it's made up of quartz, mica, and feldspar. Very, uh-huh. very hard. The quartz and the mica um, have properties that are piezoelectric. Um, but when it comes to, you know, and of course, quartz crystals are very much part of uh, electronic communication. Uh, yeah. Well, remember the old scanners that used to use quartz crystals to allow you to listen to fire and police? Um, yep. And, and that is just a, a you know a particular, sh- literally a crystal that's been shaped and formed in a way to allow a particular frequency to resonate through it and 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 be broadcast and transmitted. Um, I, I I don't know that um, natives or ancient cultures necessarily had the ability to use stones to communicate um, over great distances. I think that. Um, in the case of uh, the research that I did on Malta in the Mediterranean, there were um, you know, large megalithic structures there that were constructed and configured in such a way that I believe um, accentuated or amplified sound non-electronically. Um, uh-huh. I think that's a very, a very fascinated, uh, fascinating subject on, on non-electrical amplification of sound and transmission of sound. And um, there are some interesting examples of that such as yodeling, which was used in the Alps to, to, to communicate over great distances using sound. But there, again, there was no uh-huh. stone, no stone involved. Um, but the, I guess the best example would be, would be um, what I know about uh, the temples in Malta and, and how that was, uh, those stone constructions, I believe were built in a way to allow the human voice to, um, to travel great distances um, perhaps for cross water communication, but also potentially as some type of uh, weapon system or, or way to um, intimidate or scare your enemy. Um, uh, you had, you in, had an, an, a, a wonderful theory explanation for the sirens. Well, that's and what I was I leading to exactly. The, oh, okay. The, the, uh, the, the Malta, um, the goddesses of Malta, this goddess culture of Malta, which has um, uh, been documented through many different types of uh, statues and figurines and inscriptions that were found in, on the island of Malta. And again, the Malta temple culture is preliterate. It goes back about a thousand years before Stonehenge or, or the pyramids of Egypt. Um, and it was a very peaceful agricultural culture, matriarchal, in that it was run by these um, goddess figures, uh, very large Zoftic women. Uh, large in stature, large in size, large in weight, and most likely very large in voice. Um, kind of a, a I guess I, you would call it stereotypical uh, type of uh, what we think of the opera singer. Um, you know, a large woman with a large voice, although there are plenty of um, opera singers who, do not, who are not large that have large voices. Um, but in the, in the uh, so that's why I say stereotypical, um, but in the yeah. Malta culture, yeah, I, I think that the ancient Greeks who had an ancient mythology was ancient in their time, which is ancient to us, but the ancient uh, mythologies of the ancient Greeks talked about these different mythological characters, uh, creatures like the sirens who use their voices, women who use their voices to ward off and even attack their enemies, uh, generally men <laughs> who are coming to invade. Um, and yeah, that, I think that that may have been the origin of the siren myths from ancient Greek mythology, with the the goddess figures of of, uh, of Malta. But you know, there's um, some some I guess circumstantial evidence to support that. 
Well, there's a, a chamber in, in one of the temples that you have a picture of in the book that has the curved ceiling and the curved, you know, walls. And and you said that that, that kind of led to the acoustics being able to be um, accentuated by whatever sound was in them. Right. That's the oracle chamber in the Hippogeum, um, uh, uh, an underground temple in Malta that I... Uh, did some research in in 2014, part of the uh, um, conference on archaeoacoustics, the archaeology of sound, which was held there, um, and that was that was really interesting because we got to go into the hippogeum with microphones and uh, uh, sensitive recording equipment and try different types of apparatus like the human voice, like conch shells, like skin uh, drums and rattles to see how um, how they reacted, and in the oracle chamber. Uh, which is this small anteroom to the main temple uh, that has a very interesting carved ceiling that I consider to be a waveguide because any sound that's created in the oracle chamber is um, transmitted throughout the hippogeum, throughout the rest of the temple, uh, which is a three-story, you know, it's a very large um, space that they carved out of the limestone um, used used as a, uh, mortuary, uh, a necropolis. They buried their dead there for many, many, many years, um, but also had held ceremonies there. And this oracle chamber seemed to have been built in such a way to, as you say, um, amplify or accentuate the sounds that were created within it to transmit throughout the temple. Uh, so even a whisper that's um, uttered in the oracle chamber of the hippogeum it can be heard in, in all areas. So it was summarized that a... Um, you know, a priest or a goddess figure would uh, appear in, in, in the oracle chamber and, and you know, uh, command a ceremony or give out, uh, create sounds that would perhaps create trance-like um, or induced states of altered consciousness, which would, um, you know, allow them to do all kinds of things, I suppose. <laughs> well, you, you, if you go to American Stonehenge, there is a chamber there where there is a, a a voice box almost where where someone could be underneath in the chamber and could speak up and it would it would you know broadcast it to the um outside world and um so so that you know for want of electricity and microphones ancient people have learned how to use acoustics. The um, amphitheaters of the Greeks and the Romans were all constructed so that anybody could hear what was being said because of the way they were formed. So, you know, you gotta you have to give credit to to these people from antiquity that didn't have all of the techie stuff that we have, and yet they were able to create the same experience. I mean, for heaven's sakes, look at the um, the Colosseum in Rome, they could flood that thing and, and you know, have, have boats in there and then they had animals in there. And I mean, the cultures that we come from were probably more, um, had, had a greater sense of ingenious quality to them than we do today because they, they didn't have technology to work with. They had the energy of, of the land and the stones and, you know, just how to how to create the kind of settings that they needed to have in order to function and take control, and you know you you go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say one of the uh, more fascinating aspects of this archaeoacoustic conference were the speakers talking about how wherever the um, uh, cave drawings of the most ancient rock art was found in these caves in France and, and around the world, um, where the and, and a lot of times these um, you know these works of art were found deep in these caves where there was no natural light, and they were like, well, why would they choose these spots to to do these cave paintings where it was so difficult to get to them and you couldn't even, you know, they had to do them by firelight a lot of time as it's speculated, but it turns out that where these cave drawings, uh, the greatest concentrations of the cave drawings is where the, where the acoustics and the echoes and the reverberation in that, in that chamber is the, is the strongest. And they've even found that an out, outside archeological sites, like in Chaco Canyon, uh, where the highest concentration of petroglyphs are drawn on the walls is the place where the echoes and the sound is most prominent and, and most uh, uh, reverberative uh, in, in that location. So there's a correlation between the location of the ancient uh, cave paintings and rock art and where the acoustics um, are the strongest. And I thought, wow, how, how interesting is that? And, and, um, to me, it all speaks to kind of the common denominator of all this stuff is, is um, you know, attaining states of meditation and, and um, altering one state of consciousness to allow you to, um, you know, communicate with the spirits, have a shamanistic experience, time travel, you know, uh, go through a portal to communicate with, with the spiritual world. You know, all the above uh, happens uh-huh. when you are in these altered states and in these places where the um the ancient people created their centers of energy as you mentioned these were you know focal points or vortexes in some sense well i i have found that yes to all of that um but i think what what really um i kind of am curious about is that in some of the chambers there's even a um, an energetic charge of some a disturbance of a charge. There's um, there, there are anomalies in the entranceways to a lot of the chambers, um, as far as energy goes. Compasses go wacko and and things like that. Right, right. This is the um, the research by uh, uh, John Burke. Um, yes. What was his book? Uh, Stone of Knowledge, Seed of Plenty something like that. Yeah. I might have that backwards. Seed of knowledge, stone of plenty. But anyhow, he, he showed how, uh, and he had, I think he had uh, students or, um, go out and measure uh, electromagnetic hotspots, actually, as you mentioned, located, located right located at the entrances of these chambers Sorry, I just had a little uh, interruption here where I'm working. Um, That's okay. He measured um, electromagnetic hotspots, right, associated with the entrances of these chambers. Uh, and then he did experiments where he um, exposed mace, corn seed, to, uh, to the chambers and uh-huh. left a controlled, a controlled uh, batch of the seeds in the laboratory. And then after uh, exposing the seeds at the chamber locations where the electromagnetic uh, anomalies were recorded, he grew them, grew the seeds, and found that there was a much more robust yield from the mace seeds that had been um, exposed to the electromagnetic energy. 
so he proposed that native tribes in their uh, in their pursuits of agriculture may have taken their mace seeds to these uh, chambers, uh, kind of treated them with the properties of the electromagnetic energies that were present there, and then grown them to achieve greater crop yields than if they had not been treated. So this, to me, was totally kind of mind-blowing. Um, one, you know, that they understood that this was possible, and two, that they were able to identify where these uh, where these hot spots were, you know, either intuitively or through some type of um, dowsing or energy location technique. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's really quite interesting. And Burke's work didn't just stop there. You know, he um, extensively studied the uh, megaliths at Karnak in France and also identified that the megaliths there had all been stood up and arranged in such a way that their north and south polarities, because every large uh-huh. stone has a north and south polarity, he discovered they were all aligned. They were all set up so that the norths were all in one direction, the souths were all in, in, in another direction. Um, and how they would have known that and how they would have configured that site and why uh, is really is really um, quite baffling. Although, you know, there is some speculation uh, that configuring large stones with, so their magnetic properties north and south all aligned is somewhat uh, suspiciously similar to what we see in, in particle accelerators like the large Haldoran Collider in CERN, Switzerland, where mm-hmm. magnets, have been all, magnets have all been arranged with their north and south polarities aligned so that they could accelerate particles to understand and help discover what, what they call it, the God particle. So, um, you know, is it possible that ancient people were onto the same thing, the same understanding of quantum physics so that they could um, set up these stones in Karnak uh, to study those properties? And I think a lot of these places, like the Great Pyramids, like Karnak, like Stonehenge, were what we today might consider great earth science centers where they studied astronomy and hydrology and seismology and uh, all the different natural sciences kind of came together in these areas uh, and these locations where they built these giant uh, megalithic constructions and they were multi-purpose. They didn't just, you know, it wasn't just a tomb. It was not just a compass aligned to the cardinal directions. It wasn't just an energy uh, accumulator, but it was many, many things that together created, um, you know, a great center of what we would today call science and understanding of the natural world, the science. Now, I know that, that, the, <clears throat> that the Native Americans um, had, had villages. They had, they had places where they camped constantly. Um, have, has, has there ever been a discovery of what might have been um, an ancient campsite for a village or something like that? Well, in our region, certainly, um, we have areas around Kingston, New York, and, and Wappingers, um along the Hudson River. There are areas where there have been continuous human occupation as long as there have been humans in the area. So whether we're talking twelve or fifteen or 18,000 years ago when humans arrived here, and some people think it was much longer than that, but that so far the evidence supports that there were humans in, say, the Hudson Valley or the Catskill region, um, 
you know, at least 12 and probably more like 15 or 18,000 years ago. And I say at least because it keeps getting pushed back further and further by, uh, by the academics and by the research that supports what these dates are. Um, but since people first arrived, they did uh, continuously habitate in the Kingston, New York area where you had the Hudson River, plus several mm-hmm. other travel corridors like the Rondout Creek, the Esopus Creek, the Wachill River all converge and empty into the Hudson River right around the point of Kingston, where Kingston is. And there's a large ridge that runs north and south along the Hudson on the west bank that has been um, extensively excavated for Native American habitation, industrial lithic production sites, burials, um, uh, extensively. So, so, you know, if you were to go and research at the New York State Museum or the New York Archives, you would find that there's evidence of continual habitation in these regions because they were a confluence of or a convergence of travel corridors and a confluence of, um, uh, of regional resources, sustainable resources. In the river, you had oysters, you had sturgeon, you had fish of many varieties in the mountains and and uh, woods around the river, you had uh, unlimited game, and you had in the valley floors fertile soil that could be um, used for agriculture, and all these things were conducted uh, and took place um, uh, in that region. And there were a few other regions along the Hudson River as well that were continually habitated. So, um, you know, this speaks to you can't have uh, an area that's continually habitated by humans for 10,000 years without having... A, a, a civilization establish itself uh, with all the hallmarks of, of what typically create a, a sophisticated um, system of, of uh, you know of um, existence of humans where they're trading where mm-hmm. they um, have education centers where they are uh, you know um, creating art creating um, you know all all the things that you would expect to find with with a uh, with a, a great civilization they may not have had certain hallmarks um they may not have necessarily had to develop a a, a written um you know a, a written language because they were oral in their traditions and they didn't usually have any type of written uh language but that didn't necessarily mean that they um were not a sophisticated civilization to me what it all it meant is that they had superior memory skills. They didn't have to write things down. They were able to uh, recall and remember everything that was important, including the names of the star of the stars and, and the movements in the skies. Well, you know, you just you mentioned excavate and um two things. I'm wondering I going under the assumption that some of these stone walls could easily be thousands of years old has anybody ever excavated to see and knowing that that seasonally there are leaves that fall and they decay and then you know ground is eventually made and built up has anybody ever taken one of these really old walls and dug down to see how actually tall it really was that's a great question. I don't know that there have been actually any deconstruction of these walls to see how far down they go or how much of the debris has built up along their base. I know there's been some probing with metal rods to see where you stop hitting stone and start hitting soil. Um, I think there are some new science, uh, new techniques that are being developed that are going to uh, finally solve some of the questions as to the dating 
and the age of these stone sites. You have this technique known as um, um, optical luminescence that's able to take soil samples from beneath the walls and from beneath the stone cairns and um, date them by understanding when sunlight last shone upon the particles of the sample and come up with a, a, a date. And I think um, that's been done on some sites uh, in Pennsylvania through NERA and their research. And I think they're expecting to have some answers by next summer. We're planning to do a uh, optical lumin luminescence study at the Lewis Hollow site, hopefully sometime in 2019 and take samples from both walls and and Karens and great Karens, because we have some very large Karens up there up to 100 feet in length and 20 feet mm -hmm. in height. And we would very much like to get samples from beneath those. And we're going to be doing a, um, uh, coming up in the spring, starting a fundraising to get some of the funds in place to do that study once we uh, we, we determine that that's uh, what we're going to be doing. And I think it is. Uh, you have to get permission from the owners. You have to, you know, line up the, uh, the uh, archaeologists and the laboratory that's going to do the, the analysis. Um, a lot of that footwork has already do been done through NERA, so we're hoping at the Lewis Hollow site and through Overlook Mountain Center, which is the nonprofit that um, oversees that land, we're going to conduct similar research and hopefully come up with some answers as to how old these piles are, how old these stone walls are, um, and maybe understand the true origins uh, and antiquity of the site. So it's exciting. Well, yeah, I, I know at one point Patrick and I found what we considered to be a very old wall, and he dug down three or four feet, and it was still going down into the ground. So it would have made that wall eight or ten feet high if it was, you know, if all of the dirt was removed to a place where it was, you know, above, just above the foundation. So a lot of the walls that we see that, that you know, snake, for want of a better word, across the landscape here in the northeast, here in Connecticut and, and probably New York as well, that seem to be, you know, just normal walls. I don't, they may not have been just normal walls. They may have been a lot taller than, um, than, than we're seeing because if they are thousands of years old, there's thousands of years of deposits around them that that you know will have built up. <clears throat> Another it's thing true. that it's I true wanted. The, it's true with the Karens as well. We may only, well. I was just saying it's uh, not only the walls, but the Karens as well may have um, uh -huh. um, centuries of debris built up on their base. So they may actually, in fact, be quite a bit taller than they visually look, and they may extend down into the ground. Uh, as far above the ground as we see them. So if you're seeing a wall that's three feet tall, it could be easily three feet below the ground as well. Um, oh, yeah. And, and there's no no way to tell other than to excavate and to kind of deconstruct and to probe and to, um, you know, to to dig into it and see. And and it's, you're right, a lot of that, a lot, that's been limited. Not a lot of that has been done. Um, well, yeah, and possibly... And for, for, for fear, for fear that if they are in fact Native American sacred sites or, or churches, um, ceremonial sites, you, you you don't want to disturb them and you don't want to necessarily dig and and be invasive. Um, so until the question is settled as to whether a site is colonial, early American, or Native American, um, you know it, it probably is prudent to take caution in how you approach investigating it. Oh, absolutely. Um... 
And I think one of the other things that I found fascinating, you were talking about, um, I don't know if it was hikers or traders or whatever, but they they um, they were hiking through the through an area in the woods, and um, they when they were stopping to rest, their guide went over to a, a stone pile and selected a rock and put it on the rock. And that was so reminiscent to me of the Jewish tradition of leaving a rock on headstones. And I, I spoke with you earlier about, you know, the possibility of there being uh, a, a Jewish influence in some of these these um, procedures. Well, the the the, uh, the burial practice of, of building a stone mound and leaving a stone um, when you visit it, I think, is universal. Uh, it is certainly a Jewish tradition. Um, and if these are burials, then it is um, quite possible that they are visited or were visited uh, for many generations, and and um, and offerings left in the form of a of a stone place there. Um, we had a, a Native American presenter at one of the NERA conferences named Donald Aubrey, who um, talked about how the natives in the Northeast uh, handled burials, and he did say they were sky burials, not dissimilar uh-huh. to what they would do out West. Out West, they would build a platform. He said in the East, they would put the corpse in a tree and allow it to be uh, defleshed over a period of time by natural processes. And then there was a group of... Um, a society known as the bone crushers who would take the skeleton and crush the bones into, uh, you know, into powder basically and wrap them in an animal skin and bury them in the ground and then cover it over with a pile of stones. He said the more prominent the person who passed away was, the um, the more or the larger the pile of stones was. So a, an important chief would have a large pile and maybe somebody lower down in the tribe, maybe not such a big pile. Um, but this this is um, a, a, uh, a universal tradition, and there is a tradition in the Jewish faith of, of doing this with stones and com- continuing to do that. Um, as far as uh, you know, a, a, a ancient Judean presence in America, uh, I don't think it can be entirely dismissed. There's some, um, you know, evidence. Uh, there's certainly uh, followers of that belief, such as the Mormons. Uh, they certainly believe that the Native Americans are descendants from a, uh, a, a, a Semitic origin or Semitic tribes, lost tribes of Israel found their way to America. Um, you know, I, I'm not convinced entirely of that, but there is some evidence uh, by, by this researcher, Zena Halpern, that I present in the book having to do with stones that were found in the Catskills that had um, Paleo-Hebrew or Phoenician inscriptions on them that referred to this goddess Asherah, uh, a deity in the Bible that's um, identified as the consort of God. It's almost like the wife of God uh, is how she's mm-hmm. referred to. And in ancient Judea, about 800 BC, when when many cultures were transitioning from matriarchal to patriarchal, men taking charge instead of the uh, women, which in the in in the further back in time you go, the more you find matriarchal cultures and peaceful cultures run by women. Um, and, and Native American culture is also uh, uh, very much matriarchal, where the women were the kind of the uh, head of the household and, and um, uh, controlled a lot of the activities related to the tribe. 
Um, so there is that parallel. And, and what Zena believed and what she thought these stones were evidence of were the fleeing or the purging of Ashira followers in Judea around 800 BC and that they came to America and set up a colony uh, in in what today would be the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. And she um, has a very fascinating theory and a very interesting book that came out uh, last year. Unfortunately, Zena passed away in the past year, but she did leave a, a fantastic book, um, uh, The Templar Mission to North, uh, excuse me, The Templar Mission to Oak Island and Beyond. And the Beyond is the Catskills. Um, and she based her research on a document called the Camorra docu- Document, uh, found in a church in northern Italy that referred to an overseas expedition in 1178 by an English um, a Knights Templar named Ralph de Soudelet to, uh, to North America to um, find these lost scrolls that the Templars had recovered in Jerusalem and had had taken to, uh, to America or had somehow made their way to America. It's a very... Um, uh, complicated, convoluted story. Uh, she does a masterful job um, investigating, uh, doing investigative research. I wouldn't necessarily consider it academic research, but investigative research, yes. And she does a, a great job connecting the dots of a very complicated story um, and and uh, tying it all together. Um, so yeah, there there is the chance that that some of this may have actually happened and that there. Are, were colonies of ancient uh, Judeans in America um, trying to uh, preserve this goddess culture um, that was being purged from the Middle East at the at that time, 800 BC. Um, one of the, one of the uh, best supporting evidence that Zena came up with was an excavation that took place in the Mediterranean off the coast of Haifa, where they uncovered a ship. This was in the 1980s. They excavated a ship from the floor of the Mediterranean, and when they reconstructed this ship. Which had been preserved in an antibiotics, uh, in a, um, you know, in a, in a, um, it just had been buried in the ocean floor and, and protected in an oxygen free environment, is what I'm trying to say, buried in the mud. <laughs> so it was very yeah. well preserved. Okay. When, they brought, when they brought these timbers back up, they reconstructed this ship and it was much more sophisticated than anything they imagined for the time. Again, this was about 800 BC. This was a trading craft. They believed it. Um, at the time, they, they they thought that most of the ships from that period traveled along the edge of the coast, never really leaving the site of land. Um, but it turned out that when they reconstructed this ship, uh, architecturally, it was, um, you know, very sophisticated. A master sailor would be able to sail this type of ship any point to any point on the globe um, without any problem, uh, given, you know, the cooperation of the weather gods of course, but, um, you know, this ship sailed straight across the Mediterranean from Greece to, uh, to the, 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 uh, uh, coast of, um, what today is Israel and, um, and then sunk with its cargo and was preserved until it had been excavated. But, uh, you know, that probably, um, um, at least uh, a thousand years ahead of its time when it came to what they were expecting to find as, for, as far as ships, trading ships from that era. Um, so so speaks to the possibility that people could have taken such a ship and come to America at that time. Well, I think we have, you know, really not given credit to antiquity for 
their ability to do things that sometimes we can't even do today. I think one of the most frustrating things for me about the chambers and the walls and the Karens and the dolmens is that in 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 a lot of ancient sites they're able to dig up um artifacts that that help to date you know the, the area or the or the or the site and to my knowledge there there hasn't been any there haven't been any um artifacts found at least in the chambers i don't know about about the cairns and the dolmens but uh or the walls but there are no artifacts to to lead us to any particular time frame or or period have there been well that's one of the biggest challenges that there is uh, not a lot of of that type of uh, artifact evidence and of course the cairns and the stones are not considered evidence themselves, which is a problem. But um, as far as the Karens, many of them are found in areas where um, headwaters of streams and springs uh, exist, and there have been um, arrowheads and spear points and uh, artifacts like that discovered in association with some of the Karen fields. Um, I've seen some myself. I've seen bone tools. I've seen... um, stone artifacts and even some pottery shards that have been associated with habitations near these Cairn sites. Um, But if the Cairn sites themselves, and and again, this is why they, they kind of fall between the, you know, they're, they're not really classified or recognized. One of the reasons by archeology span or anthropology is because the lack of, of, um, of artifacts and Mm -hmm. um, unless sites are threatened, with development and are and and potentially being destroyed, there's really not an opportunity to survey them. A proper archaeological survey usually only happens if a site becomes threatened. Um, and there have been many sites that have been threatened that have had archaeological surveys, some of which have turned up artifacts of, of Native American habitation and others that haven't. And um, if these are, in fact, ceremonial sites, spiritual sites, I don't know that you would necessarily find the typical type of artifacts that you would find in archaeology that are associated with habitation sites, which is basically piles of debris that they go through and, and you know, um, the, the, the garbage that was discarded, the broken uh, uh, arrow points, the remnants of, of uh, industrial reduction creating uh, um uh, you know, uh, arrow points and, and spear points, um, it, you know, in, 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 unless that evidence is there, they really can't, uh, and they really have difficulty classifying these sites. And when you talk to archaeologists and historians about Native American activity in the Northeast, they're very happy to talk to you about um, habitation and agriculture um, and to some extent um, industrial lithic uh, production activities, but as soon as you bring up spiritual activities, what were their spiritual practices? They dummy up. They 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 give you very little. Uh, they admit to knowing very little, and what you might get them to say is that they practiced a form of shamanism, and that's about it. But they won't really talk about the the details, and maybe they don't have the right to. Maybe they don't you know hold the keys to talk about the details of Native American spiritual um, practices. Um, which which reminds me of um, when when I 
uh, when the when Spirits of Stone first came out um, back in April, I, I gave a talk at the uh, FDR Library, the Presidential Library in Hyde Park, part of the Hudson Valley History Reading Festival. And when I was done with my talk and I was out front and I was uh, meeting people, um, uh, an older woman came up to me and she was obviously Native American. And she said she enjoyed my talk, but she took offense to me referring to uh, Native American mythology. She said, you, you talked about that a lot. And she says to me, none of it's mythology, it's spirituality. She said, you know, how would you like it if I spoke of Jesus Christ as a mythology? And I said, well, actually, I was raised Jewish, so <laughs> Jesus Christ is absolutely a <laughs> mythology. It's not spiritual, but we had a moment there, and 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 we, you know, it, it begged the question: who owns or who holds the the keys to telling these cultural stories of of different groups? And really, I think we all do, but it has to be done with, um, you know, with respect and with sensitivity and with awareness, um, uh, you know, of of all parties. So it's. Um, you know, it was kind of a, a, a teachable moment for us both. And I think um, I, and uh, for me, because now I, I, I do refer to it much more as the native American spirituality. And I don't refer to it as their mythology because to them, it is a spiritual pursuit was, is, and will be. Um, and, and referring to it as mythology is in some way uh, denigrates or, or, you know, um, you know, not consciously puts it down, but puts it into a different category and I think uh, yeah. to 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 convey respect, it should be expressed as spiritual beliefs, not mythological beliefs. And I appreciated her correcting me on that. Well, yeah, I can certainly understand that. I mean, the, the, those people, before we interfered with them, had had a connection to the land that was profound. And I would I would say that that they had to have people who were either using some form of dowsing rod or who were able to just tune into the energy of the earth to find, um, they didn't need to find water as much, but, but find places that had a more spiritual feeling to them. Um, there, there are, very much like in Europe, there are sites that, that religious, spiritual sites are, they're in a line, they're, it's very, it's distinctive. It's very much like your, I'm going to say it wrong, the um, Hamanacet line. Right, the Hamanacet line, sure. And a lot of that Hamanacet. research is similar, uh, similar to some of the work like um, by Jean-Michel in, in Great Britain, uh, New View over Atlantis, where he showed how so many of the churches are along alignments, straight line alignments, um, and of course, that many of the important churches were built on on pre-Christian uh, uh, pagan sites uh, that also, uh, um, you know, recognized the same alignment and many times aligned with uh, solstice, sunrises and sunsets and, and other events, star rises, um, constellation arises on the horizons. So, um, so yeah, there is a correlation between what we're finding in the patterns that we find here in the Northeast and other other parts of the world, including megalithic Europe, um, Great Britain, and those types of alignments that uh, that John Michel showed in in his books. You want to talk a little bit about the Hamanasset line because that that's fascinating. It goes from the tip of Long Island 
through Woodstock. It does. There's a there's a um, and beyond. There's a, a stone out there near Montauk called Council Rock that the Montauk Indians used as a council site. A very large megalith. And I think there's a picture of it in the book. And um, uh, one of the nearer members, um, uh, Tom Paul, uh, began researching this. He lives in Hammonasset, so it ended up being called the Hammonasset Line because from his property he traced in both directions towards the um, the megalith on uh, uh, at Montauk. It's actually at Fort Pond at a cemetery there. Um, and uh, the line is a uh, winter solstice sunrise, summer solstice sunset alignment that goes from the basically the tip of Long Island, uh, crosses the Long Island Sound near Plum Island, uh, bisects the Connecticut coast near Hammonasset, and then continues through Connecticut, marked all the way by, by lithic sites, um, uh, Karen fields, uh, perched stones, um, prayer seats, and Manitou stones, um, crosses into New York State, crosses the Hudson River at a place called Montgomery Place, um, a very historic site, um, and then and then comes into the Catskills and, and intersects precisely with what's known as Devil's Tombstone, which is another very large megalith. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I plotted the lo- the location of um, of the uh, Fort Pond Stone, Council Rock, and and the Devil's Tombstone up in the Catskills in Stony Clove, and connected those two points on the map with a straight line. Um, they were exactly what you would expect to find for a winter solstice sunrise, summer solstice sunset alignment. And then I pro- continued to project that line from the Catskills. Uh, and again, as it passes through the Catskills, it intersects with the uh, the Overlook Mountain, Lewis Hollow site. It intersects with Stony Clove. It intersects with um, Spruceton Valley, another important Karen site and wall site. And then there are many other sites that I show in the book that are on alignments that are parallel to the Hammonasset line. So they have a similar alignment. But when I projected the line further north and west uh, using computer software that accounts for the curvature of the earth, uh, it, it led to, um, to the Copper Country up in, in Michigan and to a little island off the Kennesaw Peninsula called Manitou Island, which, I, which again, just kind of blew me away because Manitou, of course, yeah. being the spirit spiritual name of, of Native Americans and the spiritual energy of the Great Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so um, you know, it's kind of like, well, what's this all about? And, and, you know, how did this come about? And I just raised so many questions, so many fascinating questions that, that begged an answer. Um, and we really still don't have all the answers to how that line was established and who created all the constructions and what it was pointing to. Uh, but of course, in in, um, in Michigan and the Upper Peninsula, there's that great mystery of the iron, uh, excuse me, of the copper yeah. that's been mined and the, the missing copper, oh, yeah. and who 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 mined it and when, and that goes into deep antiquity as well, thousands of years BC. And uh, there yeah. are those who feel that 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 may have well um, been the source uh, of copper that fueled the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean. Um, mm-hmm. the cultures coming over here and mining this high-grade copper that was basically practically sitting on the ground on the surface to be to be uh gathered up and um yeah, it's practically and pure of too yeah yes very very so high I'm, grade I'm, I'm curious why did you stop at manitou island well <laughs> i probably should continue uh to plot it further uh, yeah, um, i mean 
it, it, they, back, the, the line the line that goes from um, uh, American Stonehenge passes right through one of the um, arches of Stonehenge in Great Britain, and you go beyond that, and it hits a, another couple of you know really important sites. So, I I I would have I, continued I, it to see just where <laughs> else it was going to hit. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that line because when I saw that on TV, I want to say America Unearthed or something like that, where they interviewed, um, I think it was Dennis Stone's son, uh, the owner of America's Stonehenge. I tried to recreate that projection using Google Earth. And when I went from the solstice line in America's Stonehenge, it didn't go anywhere near Stonehenge in England. And then, according to what they said, it then it then if you continued the projection, I think they said it went to the to the pyramids in Egypt or it went somewhere that it would have had to have made a ninety degree turn to to end up there. So I hate the bunking, yeah. but when I when, when I when I tried to recreate what they ex- expressed in that TV show, it didn't add up to my to my um, yeah, you know, to my senses and, and trying to uh, to recreate what they describe. Now, I did take that same line. Now, that's the summer solstice sun, sunrise, winter solstice uh-huh. sunset line that they claimed ran from America's Stonehenge straight to England's Stonehenge and one of the lintel stones. I couldn't figure that, but when I took the line and ran it in the other direction uh, from America's Stonehenge south and west, and I think I show this in the book, it ran directly through the chamber locations in uh, Putnam County and right and, and oh, connected yeah. several of connected several of those locations. And then I continued that projection further south and west to where it bisected what is today the New York, New Jersey border. And it also uh, bisected at that location just between two um, established sites, one known as the, um, Way, way on the calendar stone, and the other known as Table Rock, one which has a solstice alignment, the other an equinox alignment. Um, so, you know, so I do think America's Stonehenge is significant. I think the alignments that run from there uh, do point to important things. I wasn't able to recreate what they said uh, ran in the in the um, uh, northeast direction, but I did plot it the other way and did find it had some some interesting alignments in our region. Um, so, so, um, yeah, so, you know, there's st- still a lot of, of clues out there, a lot of things that need to be followed up on, um, you know, in, in a way too much for me to do in one lifetime, but I, I'm hoping by putting it all into one book and, and getting it out there for people to see others will, uh, will kind of take up the challenge. And I know others are, and, and I'm not the sole, uh, one doing this. You, you've done a tremendous amount and, and you're, um, uh, with your, your, uh, uh, husband also um, documented yeah. a lot of these things, found the same fascination I find, and some of the same patterns. And um, yeah. as I mentioned, uh, uh, um, uh, Curtis Hoffman in in Con- uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts is doing a similar thing. Um, uh, I talk about Harry Holstein down in Alabama, who's identified very similar types of sites. Down there, he's an archaeologist at the Jacksonville State University. Um, William Romaine, out in uh, Ohio, is doing a lot of the similar research with with uh, mound sites and establishing archaeoastronomy of the uh, Hopewellian and Mississippian Adena cultures. 
Um, so it, it is, uh, you know, starting to get more recognized. It is starting to uh, work its way into mainstream academia. It's just a very slow process. The dogma is very entrenched of, um, you know, a, a Eurocentric view of how things went here. And, um, uh-huh. you know, I think maybe a hundred years from now, we'll, we'll see a different story being taught to the kids. Hopefully it'll maybe only take a few generations, but uh, I think we're, we're on our way. The door has been opened and now, um, you know, it's, it's up to the, uh, the new generation. And, and, you know, that's, that's a big part of, of this becoming accepted. Um, you now have native Americans, um, young scholars who are Native Americans that are archaeologists and anthropologists that work for the tribes, that work for the nations, both in America and in Canada, who are reinterpreting these sites. They're going back and looking at what the archaeologists said in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and and correcting them and reinterpreting them as uh, important archaeoastronomy and observation sites uh, when they were dismissed as, as um, you know, kind of just random constructions a lot of times just considered ornamental when in fact there was a very practical purpose to what was uh, being depicted um so so uh you know we're 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 making progress I'm glad well to yeah and you've you've done a tremendous amount of work with overlook mountain too and that is now protected i understand or parts of it anyhow well, yes, the Lewis Hollow site, uh, which is a 40-acre yeah. site, and an- another parcel that was connected to it, another 40 acres we were able to protect um, about five years ago. This All, all this land went up for sale, listed on the, on the MLS, and um, a lot of people had thought that all this land was already protected because the families who, zoned it had, who had owned it had kept it undeveloped for 40 years, but... Um, uh, then they, you know, they were elderly. They needed money. Who knows? But it ended up on the market, and we um, kind of sprung into action, formed Overlook Mountain Center, a nonprofit in New York State, um, uh, partnered with a foundation who helped come up with the money to purchase the land from the, the owners, and now it's uh, uh, in the process of being permanently protected, and we are um, stewarding the land and and um, conducting educational and research programming to help us better understand it and help kind of uh, uh, spread the word about um, what the site is and, and teach people, use it as, a, as um, a resource for education, raising awareness of these types of sites. So that's exciting. And we do have uh, programming. If folks go to overlookmountain.org, they can see the schedule of the tours that we conduct there and they can see some of the results of the uh, studies that we've done some of the upcoming program, I should mention, we do have um, scheduled for March 16th, which is a Saturday, a program um, with Doug Harris, a Deputy Tribal Preservation Officer of the Narragansett in Connecticut, and he's going to come and do a program on identifying and protecting ceremonial stone sites. So it'll be a workshop where folks can come and learn about uh, these different types of sites, what they can do, how they can work with uh, local historical societies and town boards to identify and uh, protect these sites if they're threatened, uh, help build a, a inventory of them in the town um, so that they can, uh, you know, going forward be recognized um, and, and uh, again, protected should they become threatened. Uh, see them as a, as a um, resource of significant cultural significance, which a lot of times they are not. Um, 
so so that's the kind of work that we're we're trying to do and um and bring to the public i think it's it's so important because the walls people just don't even think about uh they just figure colonists the the chambers you know root cellars and and the the dolmens and the cairns as well i mean they they mark a time that we don't have a history on and understanding your history is is really important because it gives you a foundation to grow on and and take notes from because this this culture that we j- destroyed um had a great deal to teach us about 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 the stars about the land about how to get along and how to get along with the land and and not destroy it, but rather, you know, be a caretaker of it. And uh, I think it's important that children be educated um, in that way. I, I, you know, I'm real close to, you know, Carmel, and I'm real close to all of the um, chambers, and some of them are so easy to get to. You just, you absolutely want to take children there and show them to them. You want you want them to understand that that this is corbel construction and the last time it was seen was 3000 years ago with the Phoenicians and and what were they doing here? And you know, just just sort of put put seeds of questions in their minds so that so that growing up they they will learn to to look for information that isn't in the books. That's One true. It's such an important, such an important message, and um, and these sites do hold a, a message for us, and that's kind of what's um, the, kind of the the takeaway that we want to have from visiting these sites, from studying them. Uh, you know, I mentioned Doug Harris when, if you were to ask him about these sites and what their meaning is, and he's a Native American who has as much insight into these as anyone, and. Um, his answer would be very concise. He would say, as you were just mentioning, they are they're they're sites, spiritual sites that teach us about balance and harmony, living in balance and harmony, in balance and harmony with each other, in balance and harmony with nature, in balance and harmony with the universe that that encompasses everything around us. And by studying these sites and by realizing their true meaning, we can understand how to achieve that balance and that harmony with nature. And within ourselves, which is really what's important, and 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 for us to grow and learn and 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 um, exist, continue to exist as society, as a culture, uh, we really do need to to find that that balance and that harmony that is um, so missing and so lacking these days, and and so much, um, you know, a part of what we need and and don't have. So I try to spend well, yeah, as much yeah. time as possible. At these sites. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's the spirituality that they had that connected them, and that's something that that so many people today have replaced spirituality with techni- technological things. And you know, it's it's getting to know yourself and where you are in land. And and um, I live in a in a in the woods. I'm on a pond. And 
it is it is amazing the 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 symbiotic nature you have when you're really close to the land you're on. It talks to you. And, you know, if you didn't have TV and cell phones and um, <clears throat> all sorts of other technological things, if we didn't have cars and there wasn't pollution, we would be more in touch and in harmony with the land. So in a way, our, our becoming more technically um, related has taken away our connection to nature. It's important to get it back. It is, and and it, and it also speaks to that balance and harmony. You know, we we are right now we're struggling between um, finding that balance between technology and the natural world. And um, you know, we're in a transitional period where, where you know we all grew up with that movie Future Shock by Alvin Toffler, where we're living it now. You know, the future is happening quicker than we can assimilate it into our into our psychological beings. And understanding these sites helps us with that transition because it helps us realize and put into perspective the balance that we need. We can't just survive and exist on this, on this diet of technology. It's going to starve us. And, and we need to balance it with nature and with um, uh, having a relationship with the environment that's productive and positive. And and, um, and and that's going to be the key to, to us uh, evolving, getting to the next level of human existence, the next rung on the uh, uh, ladder of, of ascending consciousness is get, you know, get into balance with nature given this um, onslaught of technology that's in our lives. And hopefully it won't take any kind of... Um, cataclysmic or, you know, catastrophic event to, to bring that about, um, which unfortunately in the histories, um, you know, these, these <laughs> great, these great changes in, in, in time and in, in culture and in society usually portend some type of cataclysmic event that, that uh-huh. um, you know, precipitates it. Uh, so, you know, if we're lucky, we can, you know, get through with minor growing pains, just not, major destruction but who knows what the future holds well on top of that every you know the the native americans have a a deep respect for the elders and they rely upon them and the elders are a very large part of their community um that doesn't happen so much today and i'm kind of sad to see that because the elders have the history inside of them and if they don't share that history, then you're then you're left with an empty space, which is not a good thing. So, I am we are we are real close to being done here. I I have like 400 more questions to ask you, but I do want to thank you so much for being here tonight and helping to share your your wealth of information with the audience. Oh well, thanks for having me, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. I, I could. Um... You know, I could spend all night answering your 400 questions, but, but uh, we'll have to maybe <laughs> talk, talk into... again at some point. Yeah, I want to. I want to quickly ask you what happened um, with the Sophia project. The Sophia project, yes, at the at the uh, Center for Symbolic Studies. Um, Sophia is still sitting in a field, awaiting um, a time when people can erect her, uh, stand her up. Um, and and you know 
I think I think she's a victim right now of the times that we're in, because uh, there would be a there was a time when putting a stone like Sophia up was probably not a big issue. Um, so this is a large megalith that was uh, identified at the at the uh, Stone Mountain Farm in Tilson, New York. Steve Larson, who's a wonderful author and um, uh, researcher, psychologist, um, therapist came up with this project probably almost 10 years ago now, and, and the stone was moved into the field where uh-huh. it's going to be set up. And, and several years ago, a group of us um, got together and, and using large levers and, and, and uh, primitive methods uh, raised it um, on one end to show that we could and, um, and moved it um, on rollers. And uh, the, the goal is to stand this stone up uh, using only uh, ancient methods, but it takes a lot of um, cooperation. It takes, you know, it's not so much money. It's community spirit. It's building a team. It's coordinating the timing. Um, it's it's really, uh, you know, a challenge in these days to undertake an effort like this and and make it happen. Um, but I don't think it's something that's been given up on. I'm not the lead on that. Uh, a gentleman named Rob Roy, who's also a wonderful author and has written a book on stone circles. Um, you know, that he's, he's the lead on that, and I know he hasn't given up, and at some point we hope to uh, to get back into that project. But thanks oh, for mentioning cool. it. Yeah, I know. I was fascinated with it, and I, I went looking for it and uh, realized it hadn't happened yet. But um, it, it looks it, – it, it, there are pictures on it, and it and it's just – it's amazing – uh, I would love to see that stone raised. Um, yeah, but our time yeah, I is think up. it will happen. Our time is up, and, and I have to say good night. But I do thank you so very much. This has been – I have so enjoyed this. I, I love it when I can talk stones with anybody. And um, Well, thanks, for having, you, thanks so much for having me, and um, I hope everybody has a uh, wonderful new year. And uh, let's keep in touch and we'll talk again. Absolutely. And to all of you listening, his website is um, overlookmountain.org. He's got great pictures on there of, of some of these cairns and, and walls that are, that are amazing. Take a look at his material. His book is, is a Bible called Spirits in the Stone, The Secrets of, the Megalith- of, Megalithic, of the Megalithic America. Um, it's a great read, it's informative, it's exciting, and it should be part of everybody's library. And once you've read it, go out and check your woods out. You'll be amazed at what you find. Good night now, everybody.